Peter gives us a little paraphrase from 127 to our text today. So I thought this was really good because it helps kind of get our mind into the reading of the text. So listen to this paraphrase of this. He says this. Paul, he says, Paul's float, uh, thought kind of flows like this. I have a single desire that your daily life should match the worth of the gospel. Without such a life, you will never hold your ground against the world. Strong in what God has done for you. Unanimous. Jointly working for your common faith. But stead, such steadfastness has great results. It, conv- it convicts the world and it convinces you. It condemns the world and it confirms the church. So that's the setup for our reading today. Now, let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-11. through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look uh, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's holy word. Let's pray together. Father, let us rest in this passage. Let us hear what you have to say to us and help us by grace to live it out for the glory of God the Father and the praise of Jesus Christ the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, as we come to this passage, we want to first of all see the underlining emphasis here of the great danger that Paul talks about. The second thing we want to do is look at an appeal that Paul makes to gospel unity through humility. And then we want to talk about the resource for that as we talk about a resource of grace. A resource of grace. So, uh, what is the great danger here that Paul brings up? Um, if you remember, and the, the thrust of the letter so far has been that Paul really loves this body of believers. I mean, it may be that this is his, you know, that one church that he planted that he really connected with, it seems like. He loves them. Uh, he opens this letter with this warmth of thankfulness. Um, there's joy, there's appreciation, there's yearning, there's affection. There's this genuine love that seems to ooze out of Paul's pen as he writes uh, uh, to this church. 
And in chapter 4, as we move on in the book, which we haven't gotten to yet, but if you move on and read chapter 4, verse 1, he calls the church, listen to this, he says, My brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. It just tells us Paul loves these people. He loves this ragtag group of people that have assembled in Philippi to worship the Lord. And in chapter 2, I mean, I'm sorry, in chapter 4, verse 2, though he, um, he, he moves from that and he begins to talk about this struggle that's going on. And so listen to what he says in 4.2. He says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Synthike to agree in the Lord. Yes, also, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help those women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so what we see there is he knows, probably through the report that he's received, that there's some things going on here. There's something detrimental going on in the life of the church. Now the question is, is what are the details of these matters? Well, we don't know. We simply do not know. All we know is is that there were some real relational issues in the body of Philippi. And the details of this particular situation are not so much as important as understanding from our perspective the very real threat of danger in the life of the church, any church, at any time, and in any place. Kent Hughes uh, has told one of the most unbelievable stories I've ever heard when it comes to church conflict. Now get this, it was a church in Dallas. True story, church in Dallas. And they began to have a conflict. They began to have a conflict and they divided up. And they, they kind of got into these camps. And then they began, to, they began to put lawsuits against one another so that they could have the property and kick the other people out is what they wanted to do. And so they took that to a civil court, which is anti-biblical. Paul warns about suing believers, you know, so here they are doing something that's not biblical. So they take it to a civil court, the judge reads it, and he just sort of, thankfully, he's a very smart judge, and he looks at it and he says, this is not my jurisdiction, you need to take it back to your church's denomination. You need to be under their authority. So that's where the case went. So the, the, the people who, and I can imagine, because I've been on a judicial case before, they're probably wrestling with that and looking at it and thinking, wow, this is pretty interesting. Uh, it's just, and it is. It's just a group of guys like me that know hardly, hardly don't know anything about the law, but you try to pull in some guys that are very smart in that and, and discuss the case. And so they discussed the case. They made a judgment, and they gave the land to one group of people, and the other people went off and started a church on the other, other, other end of town. Well, what was interesting is what they found out about how it all started. It started at a dinner, of all things. And one of the elders got angry because a child was served a bigger piece of ham than he was served. That's seriously how it started. And so guess what? When the newspapers got wind of it, guess what went into the newspapers? Church splits over ham. You see what I'm saying? That is the danger that we face. And when you read that in the paper, you either bemoan it and go, I cannot believe this. Or you laugh. What is there to do? Now we know that that particular church did not really split over the great ham event, right? 
there were some other things going on behind the scenes. Anger, bitterness, rejection, frustration. But it really illustrates that many of the gravest dangers of the church come from within. They come from within. Why is that? Well, we live in a broken world, don't we? We live in a broken world, and, and, and maybe, and especially in the church, that comes out, right? There is no less of a potential danger in the lives of the redeemed for such a division and relational factions than there is in the world. It just can happen. It can happen so easy. You see it really throughout the Scriptures. You see it with Abraham and Lot. You see it with the prophets. You see it with James where he warns against this. And you see it here with Paul. There is a constant peril of potential unkindness, hurt, Gossip, destruction. You know, we, you know, we could say, and, and I can fall into this as well, so please don't hear me preaching to you. Don't think I'm pointing a finger at anybody. But it's real easy to say, did you hear about so-and-so? So let's pray for them. You know, we have to be so very careful. The Proverbs warns us how sharp the tongue is, how it can tear down so easily. Again, we could just slip into hurt and destruction. And, we, and, and it's real easy to slip into this idea of counting ourselves first and best. Looking, not, looking out only for our own interests and the service of self to the point where the world revolves around me. And so when we have that, when we have two or more, me, myself, and I, bound into one another, disunity can happen. Sadly, this danger of disunity not only affects and perhaps damages individual lives in the church, and you have to think of it in this way, it can damage so much so that it impedes spiritual growth. It not only does that, but even more so, and I think this is one of the emphasis here in the passage Paul is making, is that it weakens our witness before the watching world. It weakens our witness. When you read about a church and the newspaper and the things that have gone on, I mean, think about it, folks. You know, just recently, all the, the, the condemnation, and rightly so, on the, on the sexual scandals that have happened in the Southern Baptist Church. And you know what? The Presbyterians shouldn't go see because you never know what will pop up next for us. You just don't. People are sinners you know, the, and the, the world doesn't quite understand that, you know? But we, what Paul is saying here is we need to take that responsibility. There are things that happen. There is a very close connection between our ability to extend the gospel to non-believers and our relationship with one another because they are evidence of the reality of the power of the gospel. As Jesus pointed out in His high place, priestly prayer in John 17. Do you remember that prayer where he prayed for unity in the church? Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, the gospel is a message of reconciliation and peace and non-Christians will not be convinced Christ reconciles us to God if we are not first reconciled to one another. This is true. And I think Jesus and Paul here care so much for the church that they would have us to be understanding of the potential dangers and ramifications of disunity that soil the heart of the gospel. 
So they would also have us learn how to deal with these issues so as to bring them, com- to bring them complete joy and to be so united in Christ and the gospel that the watching world marvels at the church as it lives in unity together. So let's unpack a little bit about Paul's appeal to us here in these first four verses. He appeals to the gospel unity through humility. Verses 1 through 4 actually is one long sentence, and it's an appealing sentence. Paul's appeal here is that is to the experience of being a Christian, and, and he's using very emotive, relational words here. He chooses his words carefully, words that petition, that petition one's uh, new identity in Christ. So look at verse 1 with me. He says, so... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So what is he talking about first here? He's talking about in Christ. I want you to catch that. In Christ. There's the unity focus. There it is. In Christ. Think about it. To have been chosen before the foundation of the world. To have had Him come and to live in this, on this planet of its sinfulness and die for you. To have your sin put to death in Him and now to be raised to newness of life in Him. To share in the innumerable blessings that He has gained for us. The question that Paul wants to ask us is this, is that encouraging to you? Is that encouraging to you? He goes on. If His comforting love has gripped you, if you have fellowship in the Spirit, if you have any experience of the affection and sympathy of Christ, He is asking the question, are these things real to you? Paul is saying with loving affection and reason, Just as you know in these ways that the gospel of Jesus has called you into a relationship with the living God, so work out that same experience of gospel unity in your own relationships. Again, Ferguson says, if we have received all the blessings in Christ and from Christ, then we are responsible to live to Christ and for Christ. Paul is grabbing at our, tugging at our heartstrings. He is showing us Christ again. And he is saying, look, isn't this true of you? Though it is feelings that Paul initially appeals to. The, king, the, the key verb here in ver, is in verse 2. And, and it's really the key to the whole paragraph. And that is to think. To be of the same mind. To be of the same mind and to think about whom and what you are united into together. That's what Paul's appealing to here. Think about this. Think about your unity. Who is at the center of it? The unity of mind is essential if we are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And it's only possible. It's only possible when we put aside selfish ambition, when we put aside conceit, and we consider others better than ourselves. Therefore, we look out for other interests 
as well as our own. It doesn't say don't look out for your interest. What it says is, is not only look out for your interest, but look out for others as well. What would that have looked like here in this church? One commentator said this, among those Christians who sought to afflict Paul in Rome, it would have meant instead a desire to partner with him and to share in his sufferings as they preached his message, rather than a desire to make themselves look good at his expense. Among the Judaizers of chapter 3, it would have meant turning away from uh, looking for glory in what is earthly. For the Philippians themselves to work toward the outcome Paul longs for in, in 4, 2 through 3, the agreement of Euodia and Synthache, and that the whole church would work together and put uh, aside unimportant differences and to selfless, self, selflessly seek to work for the good of others above their own. That's what it would have looked like. The unity desired here is not some empty togetherness of mere speculative ho-hum tribal community, but a oneness fraught with gospel purpose. Here's the idea. Here's what Paul wants you to think about. You are united in Christ. Think about what He did for you. You are united together in the gospel. Think about what that means for you. Live in light of that. Live in light of that. The gospel and Christ must be in the center. And with the gospel and Christ at the center, humility must also take center stage along with it when it comes to our attitude. Whenever people love humbly and unselfishly, especially in the midst of strained relationships, they promote unity and spread joy. But we all know, don't we? We all know that humility is difficult. It's difficult. Henry Ironside, a well-known preacher and author from um, a previous generation, used to tell a story of his struggle with humility. Uh, He uh, asked an elder friend what he could do about it, and the friend counseled him, and he said, look, what you need to do is you need to get one of those sandwich boards. This was years ago. You need to get one of those sandwich boards, and you need to put the plan of salvation on it, and you just need to walk through Chicago all day long. That'll help you have humility. And it was hard. People mocked him. They laughed at him. They jeered him. You know, all those things. He went all day long like that. And when he had returned, he had found, you know, just as he was thinking about it, it was such a humiliating experience for him. And he began to take the sandwich board off. And he caught himself thinking these words. There's not another person in Chicago who'd be willing to do something like that. pretty interesting, isn't it? Humility is a difficult thing. Whether it's the issue of pride, you know, that stubbornness of of, of vainglory, being conceited, uh, feeling superior and arrogant, you know, on the one side, or, or on the other side, this aspect of what's called false humility. Thinking poorly of oneself, low self-esteem, feeling inferior. That's on the other side. And the Lord calls us to something different. He calls us to true humility. Being lowly of heart. You know, not being arrogant or boastful. Being ready to be teachable. And to be, ser- and to be serving. 
In the end, it all flows from love. It all flows from love. Though challenging, humility is essential to the oneness Paul is appealing for. One commentator says this, It is the oil that uh, makes the intersecting gears of human personalities turn without grinding on each other. Love and humility go together. You cannot have one without the other. But to have them, you truly need grace. It takes grace. So what is the resource of grace? What is the resource of grace for the gospel unity through humility that we so desperately need? You know, don't you? We most all do in this room. We know the answer. It's always there. It's always, we joke about it being the Sunday school answer, don't we? But we need to hear it again. We need to be, let's put it this way, we need to be shown again and again and again. So to show you, I just want to simply quote Dr. Hughes as he ends his commentary on this text. Listen to what he says. The source of Paul's call to live lives worthy of the gospel through unity in the church and in other directedness is Christ himself. All this is possible through those who are in Christ. It's all possible through Jesus. Hear those words. It's all possible through Jesus. So the question for us is this, and this is how we apply this text. Will we see Jesus? Will we see Jesus and appropriate this truth for our lives? Will we live in humility considering others more important than ourselves? I want you to think about what that looks like and how, you know, how does that change community around you? Will you see Jesus? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. To what? To the point of death. And even death on a cross. One of the most cruelest ways to execute someone. Therefore, God did not leave him in that humble estate. But God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have this same mindset. Will you see Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your tender word to us this morning to call us to unity. 
Uh, we are desperate, uh, desperate people in need of truth, in need of not just truth, but in need of grace to live out the truth. And so, Father, this morning, um, we ask that you and the power of the Spirit would guide and direct our steps as we learn to live in humility. Father, I honestly believe that the place that we can practice that the most is the place that probably most of us would cringe at, and that's in our own families. The church within the church, Lord, help us. In our relationships with our spouses, in our relationships with our children, in our relationships with others that may live in our household or others that, that live close to us, that are extended family, teach us there, Lord, what it is to walk in humility, considering others better than ourselves. And why? Jesus, because you considered us. Worthy of your coming to die for us. What love. What humility. What glory. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and prepare hearts for the table.